All right. Well, welcome to Downtown Community Church. My name is Ben Kemper. I'm the pastor here, and I just wanted to say, as I watched that video this morning um, of myself, I saw a profile view, and I thought, good grief, that guy's getting gray. Um, I have a bit of an existential crisis, so I just need to point of honesty. Um, hey, we are in the last part of a series called Built this morning, and the idea behind this whole series, is it's, it's pretty um, simple, but essentially it's about how when I was raised in church, and many of us who were raised in church, or perhaps you were just raised around church, not necessarily a family who went to church, um, but you are familiar with the idea of church, you're familiar with the idea of this kind of, uh, what you might call an organized religion of Christianity, is for all of us, no matter what kind of your church background, for some of you who were raised in a high church background, in terms that you had a pastor who only wore a robe, and they swung incense and stained glass and the whole deal, there was organs that were playing, or you were the guy who had the pastor who did nothing but wear, you know, uh, jeans and sandals and sat on a stool the whole time, and you've never been to any church except for a worship leader who played an acoustic guitar, or for those of you guys who are just kind of marginally familiar with the idea of church, the idea is for any of us and all of us, regardless of your background, we all are kind of a, a, a product and are thinking of the American church, and specifically in that, that the people who are used by God um, are the people who have a position. The people who are used by God, the people who are valuable, you would say, to the kingdom of God, are productive for the kingdom of God, um, who are actually doing stuff for God, are the people who had a position like father or pastor or elder or deacon or deaconess or you were the person you know who came to the church where the, the people who did the work of God were the worship leaders or perhaps the church secretary or perhaps on the church board you know whatever it is but the people who actually do the ministry the people who actually make a difference for God in our world are the people who by the church are paid or they have a position. They're paid or they have a position in the org chart in some way, shape, or form. They are the community group leader. They are the intern. They are the person who perhaps is the community outreach leader in the different community outreaches that different churches have. But the reality is, is when you look at the scripture, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. In fact, it's the job of the leaders, scripturally, not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the people of God for the work of the ministry. And in fact, how First Peter talks about it is once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that God is in fact using you as a living stone. In other words, God is using you, each one of us, as a living stone to be built up into this spiritual house, to be built up in this idea of what he's doing here on planet earth in building his kingdom and building his church. And to, to put that in contrast with many of our church experiences, it's that the important people in church life, again, had the positions. And if we were kind of ranking stones in this idea, that that would be like the pastoral stone, and that would be the worship leader stone, depending on your church. Like, there's the pastoral stone. There's, there's like the pastor's wife stone that's always a little bit higher than the pastor stone, because everybody knows that, like, the one thing you don't want to do is piss off the pastor's wife stone. So, you know, kind of depending on your level of church. And then here's like the normal kind of congregational stone. But the reality is, is that each one of us has been gifted, each one of us has been wired, and each one of us has been uniquely called to do something for the kingdom of God, that our stone matters and our stone is vital and critical to the success as a church. And so what we are talking about are the basic building blocks that God is using to build his people, the church. Now, as we launched into this thing, um, we talked about week one, we came from First Peter, we talked about how the basic building block, the, the very first, very first part of this entire idea is a love for God. The very beginning of this whole thing stems from you have to, at some point in your life, or you don't have to, but if you are going to be a part of the church, if you're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, it's not that you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to make a difference. 
I'm going to go do something. You first have to fall madly in love with Jesus, and that comes through a realization of his love for you displayed on the cross. As, as, as Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In other words, now that you've experienced the goodness of God, now that you've experienced the grace of God, now that you've experienced the fact that you and I are sinful people, that there is no perfect person in here, there is no honestly really, really holy person in here. If you expected to walk into a church this morning with a pastor who had everything together and who had all the right answers and was sinless, you walked into the exact wrong church because I am just as sinful as you are. And we all share this commonality of sin. But we have a God who didn't look at us in our rebellion. We have a God who didn't look at us and because of the way that we had sinned and rebelled against him, look at us with damnation, but looked at us and sent his one and only son to die for us, to forgive us, and to give us new life. And step one in being built into the house of God is, is madly falling in love with Jesus himself. And step two we talked about last week was then, as Jesus would put it, when somebody asked him, you know, what are the two, what's the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord your God. Number two is just like it. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's kind of a common theme when it comes to the church world. But what we look at that is to say, hey, we ought to be good people. We ought to be nice people. Look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and where there's this guy who was beaten half naked, probably actually full naked on the side of the road. A couple of spiritual people walked by him, didn't really take a look at him. And then there's this other guy, kind of an unlikely guy who walked by, and he was the Samaritan. And he helped the guy, and he did whatever it took to bring that guy to full restoration. And that's kind of a principle that we understand in the God world, is that you ought to help people. But where we miss out on the parable of the Good Samaritan is to realize that we aren't the Good Samaritan. That Jesus is the Good Samaritan, and it's the realization of a Christian. That we are the person that because of our sin and our rebellion against God are bloody and naked in our, in our sin and our death and our destruction on the side of the road. In Jesus, God saw us, stopped, and paid the ultimate price for us to bring us back to full restoration. And the reason that we love other people is not just because we're good people. It's because we realize that we have been so, so, so deeply loved. In fact, we don't forgive people because we ought to forgive people. We forgive people because we've been so deeply forgiven of everything. We don't just serve people because you ought to serve people. It's because we have been so deeply served by our Heavenly Father through Jesus that we can't help but to serve other people. So this week, this final week, I want to talk about what I think is probably the most pressing thing when it comes to church. In fact, I think this is the reason why many people don't like church. I think this is the one thing if we could figure out if we could do, if we could implement, if we could actually put nuts and bolts to this and apply it to our lives, this morning would be the thing that I think would be an absolute game changer. Now, to kind of get there, set the stage for it, um, I don't know how many of you are um, college football fans, probably none of you guys, obviously, because, you know, we're mediocre O-line. Anyway, um, oh, another false start. So... I don't know if you, if you watched uh, College Game Day yesterday, but in College Game Day, if you're not familiar with College Game Day, there's you know, some guys that sit around and a couple girls that sit around and they talk and they you know, parse out college football. And if, if you're a big college football fan, you know that's like your quiet time on Saturday morning. You know, it's like a cup of coffee and you know, Instagram game day. And they were sitting there, and there's, there's people that hold up signs in the background. Some are funny, some make fun of other coaches, all that kind of stuff. And every once in a while, someone makes a point. And somebody held up a sign yesterday that basically said, you need Jesus, but the church is a joke. You need Jesus, but the church in the joke. And truthfully, there's a lot of us in here, for being honest, understand where he's coming from. Understand. Maybe disagree with it. Maybe agree with it. 
but at least understand conceptually and principally where he's coming from. Because for many of us, as we've looked at the church, we say, okay, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Christianity. Even I mean, come on, this love for God, this love for your neighbor, absolutely. But when it comes to the people of God, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the actual organized, whether you want to call it the structure or whether you want to call it an organized religion, I mean, the church is just a wreck sometimes and just a joke sometimes. And my hope for you, if you're in here and you're investigating Christianity, you're brand new to the whole idea, maybe just kind of revisiting, you spend it with you a while for a way and now kind of checking it out. My hope is that this morning, as we're talking about this, we're going to challenge, you know, be, be pretty challenging to, to Christians specifically. But as we're listening to this, or as you're listening to this, and you're kind of on the periphery of, of Christianity, that you at some point say, you know what, I agree. And not even a sense of like, obviously, I hope that at some point you put your faith and your hope in Jesus. But more so in a sense that you say, you know what, I agree. I am so glad that finally a pastor is saying what I have been thinking. Now, to get to where we're going to go, we're going to be in the, back, the book of Matthew. If you've got your Bible, you can open up. Matthew chapter 28, in fact. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is going to talk to his disciples. Now, let me give you a little backstory as to context what's happening. So Jesus, as he's talking to his um, disciples, we'll back up. There's a guy named Jesus. Let's start like ground one, okay? There's a guy named Jesus, claimed to be the son of God. Um, in fact, before Jesus had come on the scene, there were a, a few thousand years of prophets who would say, there's going to come the guy, there's going to come a guy, there's going to come a guy, there's going to come a savior, there's going to come a savior, there's going to come a savior, there's going to come a messiah, there's going to come a messiah, there's going to come a messiah. And when Jesus came, he claimed to be the fulfillment of all those prophets, and in fact claimed to be himself the son of God. And over about three years... He performed all kinds of miracles to substantiate these incredible claims, these claims that were so based on himself that it was just, you know, it was either ride or die. The whole thing was completely on Jesus. Well, after three years of public ministry, Jesus did what absolutely no one thought this, the Messiah was going to do because everyone thought, based on what the prophets had said, that he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its place of military and political and spiritual prominence. But Jesus did what legit no one was thinking about. He died. And nobody saw it coming. We look through the, through the lens of history, through the perspective of history, and we see it, and we see the death, and we see the resurrection. But when it happened, it shaked the belief, or it shook. That's an old, you know, that's, anyways, different way to conjugate that verb if you're from the South. He shaked, he shook their belief system to the core when he died. To the point where all the disciples kind of dipped and took off and said, we don't know if we even believe in this anymore. And then after three days, he shows back up, flips the world on its head, and over a period of 40 days, shows up and shows up and shows up and shows up again. And what we're going to read into is his very last conversation with his disciples. His very last conversation, that while he's on planet Earth, to say, okay, this is the last thing. He doesn't say this, but this is kind of you know, what we understand from history. This is the last thing that I'm going to say to you. Before I go back into heaven, I've been with you for years and years. I've walked with you for years. You guys have heard all my teachings, heard all my talk. Now, this is the very last thing I'm going to say to you before you don't see me anymore. So this is the, this is the, the conversation in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus had given them some direction on where to go. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, let me tell you what. This is why I love the Bible. Because if you're making this whole thing up and it's just an idea and a religious movement to control people, you don't put in that detail. 
This is Jesus talking to his closest people after dying, being resurrected, being crucified on the cross, coming back, showing up day after day, you know, over a period of 40 days. And this is his very last time. And he says, as they were worshiping, there was this little seed, there was a sense, there was an idea of doubt. There was a period, or there was something inside of some of the disciples, maybe all of the disciples, maybe just one of the disciples, that said, I don't know. I'm just not sure. I have this sense of I'm in, I believe it, I get it, but I can't help but think on just some kind of a level that if this would in fact were the Son of God, he wouldn't have died. In fact, his death shook their belief system so deeply that even after coming back from the dead, they still had questions. They still had insecurities. And in light of those questions... In light of those insecurities, in light of those doubts, this is what Jesus said. And Jesus came to them and said, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. In other words, I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I have been given all power and I have been given all authority. So go therefore... Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, to be truthful, I've talked through this verse a number of times. In fact, we did it with our leadership team about a month ago, and we actually went over this exact same set of verses right out a year ago. And every time I go through it, there's so much in it that I think we could do an entire series just on this one verse and what Jesus says. But he says, he starts off with, he says, I want you to go therefore, and I want you to make disciples. Define disciple first. Because when we say disciple, we all kind of cumulatively have an idea of what that means. But what we oftentimes associate with the idea of discipleship is a student, a learner. I learn from Jesus. I hear about Jesus. I am somewhat of a student about Jesus. But when they said discipleship, it had so much more commitment. It had so much higher of a level of buy-in. This was the follower. In other words, people who were Jesus' disciples weren't people who marginally had a, a, an interest or had an identification with God or with Jesus. These were people who their entire life was spent trying to be exactly like their Messiah, Jesus. In fact, in, back, in, back in the day, they would have... Um, disciples and they would have rabbis and the point of the disciple was not simply to just kind of learn from the rabbi the point of the disciple is to be exactly like the rabbi and so jesus looks at him and says okay here's what i want you to do i want you to go and make people who aren't just marginally interested in me aren't don't just have some kind of a social or a cultural identification with me who are fully devoted i'm talking their entire life is revolved around in becoming more like me and by the way i want you to go make disciples and i want you to do that of all nations now that might seem you know, kind of obvious because, again, we've read this a bunch, but that was like, go make, go make disciples of all nations before there was an internet. Like, it's a whole different deal. We tweet, and we're like, I made disciples. You know, anybody can read it, and you have like 15 followers. You know, oh, I'm spreading the gospel, and here's my Facebook post about my belief, about, you know, whatever. And so we, you know, kind of read that. Now, again, this was before they had cars. This was before they had mopeds. I don't know why moped comes up, but you know, this is before they had anything. So what this meant is someone, you know, he's talking to 11 people again. So this is not like massive crowd, and they said, okay, we're all going to do this. Probably 11 people, maybe more around, but probably 11 people when he's saying this. So that means those 11 people had to walk or get on their donkey to the end of the earth. You think about that. 
Think about if you and like 11 of your friends are gathered in an apartment or gathered in a house together. And Jesus says, okay, you 11 are responsible for taking this message and making people into fully devoted followers of me. And it's just you 11, and you've got no car, you've got no internet, you've got no telephone, you've got no cell phone, you've got a pair of sandals and a donkey outside, and that's it. And not only that, but that meant that you had to go and you had to engage people groups who were nothing like you. Because when we hear this, again, we have a natural presupposition and we have a natural prepackaged idea that if I'm going to go reach out to people, I'm going to reach out to people who look like me, who act like me, who dress like me, who talk like me, who walk like me, who have similar upbringings and similar interests. The idea behind this was, hey, you're going to have to go and engage people who are nothing like you. You're going to have to go engage people whose cultures are nothing like yours. You're going to have to go engage people whose language, perhaps, is nothing like yours. And we hear that. But the application has a complete gap. Because what we take and internalize and interpret and apply that into is I have my little group of friends, and I'm going to try to be a good person. It's like, that is so microscopically small compared to what Jesus meant when he said, go there for and make disciples of all nations. And not only that, but I want you to baptize them. In other words, there's an effect of this that is salvation. There's an effect of this that is a salvific idea. Sometimes the reason I say that is because when we talk about Christianity, we talk about discipleship, especially within the church context, it a lot of times comes to, let's take people who already believe in Jesus and take their walk deeper. And what Jesus is saying is here, no, 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 I want you to take people. I want you to help introduce to people who have no affiliation with God, perhaps have never heard the name Jesus before, and introduce them to the life-changing and the life-saving news of Jesus, of a God who sent his one and only son into the world to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins. For many of us, that's difficult to do with people we know, let alone people we have no sense of cultural or perhaps linguistic identification. So he says, not only that, but then I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded you. Now, this is the part where I'm like, Jesus, could you be less ambiguous in this idea? You know, Jesus, could you possibly give us something like, I want you to teach them the top three commandments I gave to you. You know, just the things that I repeated a lot is what I want you to teach to them. But he says, no, no, no. I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded you. You know what the, the, the premise behind that idea is? Is that you know everything that Jesus commanded. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff that Jesus talked about just in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not even including the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of us haven't even read the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's like, I know there's a guy named Amos in the Bible, no clue what he said, couldn't really find it if my life depended on it, but, you know, I, I praise God for Amos nonetheless, you know. But the idea is, hey, teaching them everything, Jesus would say, that I have taught you, everything that I've instructed you, everything that I have, 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 have talked to you about, told you about, warned you about, encouraged you with, challenged you on, I want you to teach them everything. <laughs> We're like, well, we have a difficult time reading our Bible, let alone teaching someone. I mean, come on. Because many of us, if we have a lot of information, we can understand that information well enough to at least regurgitate it back if a test was given to us or when a test is given to us. 
But the idea Jesus is saying is, hey, you should know this well enough that you can teach someone else. Now, in this idea, there is so many points of challenge. And the reality is, for me, as I'm reading through this, um, kind of the way that my ADHD brain works, and that's not like ADHD, like a kind of side thing, like I legitimately have it, is I like to have one conscious, cohesive thought about the entire sermon. But to be honest, there is so many points where I look at it and I say, okay, God, I am not, you know, gosh, I am not good at engaging people outside of my normal, who I am, what I do, what I look like, who I look like, who I am, my background. I'm not really that great, and I need to work on being better about engaging people who don't know Jesus. I need to be better about engaging people who do know Jesus and helping them to understand the, entire, the entirety of what you taught. In fact, I need to do a better job of just understanding the entirety of what you thought let alone to help the entire world to know and to do all of this. And Jesus says on the tail end of that some incredibly encouraging words. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, but here's the good news. You're going to feel inadequate, and you are. You're going to feel like you don't know enough, and you don't. But I want you to know that the beginning of this bookend... I have been given all power and all authority. I can do anything. I can say anything. I can give any wisdom. I can give any knowledge. I can do all of those things. And on the other side of it, I am going to be with you. I will give you the strength. I will give you the power. I will give you the courage. I will give you the ability to do what you don't think you can do. And if we're just being honest right now in the room, the reality is for most of us, the reason why we uh, look at Christians or look at the church, if you're on the periphery looking, if you're on the outside looking in and just kind of thinking, I don't even know if I, if I like church, if I like God, if I like Jesus. A lot of us, it's because we look at this and we look at Christians who don't live this. But God says, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you when you do this. Now let me, kind of as we're starting to wrap up, let me tell you what I think is the biggest problem in this whole thing. Let me tell you what I think at the core of the issue is the issue. I think as much as we can be challenged by each one of those individual things, you know what I think the problem is? There's not many of us in here who are actual disciples. Of Jesus. I don't mean that in an accusatory way. I just meant in order to make a disciple, you have to be a disciple. How many of us in this room can honestly say that I am following God with my entire life? And again, that's not meant to be condescending or derogatory, because I would, I mean, I would love nothing more than for a room this size to just be madly in love with Jesus and your entire life be devoted to him. And there are some of us in the room who get that and who do that and who are living that. And please, 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 we need you to continue to live in to the call of God on your life and be a disciple of God. But I think the problem is that many of us see this and see the call of God and we have an affiliation with God, but we're not actually following God. And we can surround ourselves, by the way, with tons of religious activity to fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually being obedient to the call of God on our life. There's a guy named Francis Ching who probably some of you have heard of, and he tells, gives this illustration, but I think it's funny, um, but it's true. 
He talks about his daughter, um, and I can start to identify with this. I got a little 16, 17, 18-month-old. I should know that, the details in that one. Anyway, I got a daughter. She's in that, you know, she's at the point where I can start to say, hey, Ava, will you grab a cup? And she'll, like, walk over and grab a cup. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. Because my entire life I've had, like, dogs. And this is, let me just pause and say this. But, like, they never progress. Like, you can say, like, sit, and you're just stoked when your dog actually sits when you tell it to sit. But, like, the fact that they can actually start to converse with you. She's at the fun point, too. This is a whole side thing where she says no to everything, but sometimes it actually is, like, the proper response. It's like, Ava, you want to go to school? No. You want to put your shoes on? No. She has no clue what she's saying no to, but she knows that she's saying no. Anyway, so he gives this illustration. He says, okay, this is like my daughter. This is like my daughter. Now, let's say, you know, I'm talking to my daughter, and I say, hey, you know, go, Ava, go clean your room. And she comes back to me a couple of days later, and she says, Dad, 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 you won't believe. I had a quiet time, and I studied what you meant when you said go clean your room. <laughs> it's like, man, that's fantastic. Hey, is your room clean? No, 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 no. But we studied what you meant. Come back a couple days later. Dad, all right. You'd be so proud of me. I memorized what you said. You said, go clean your room. And I even memorized in the King James, thou must goeth and cleaneth thy roometh. And I'd say, great. Did you clean your room? She'd say, no. <laughs> Dad, you won't believe. I got a group of people together, and we sat in a circle, and we held hands, and we prayed, and we talked about ways that people have cleaned and effective cleaning strategies and all that kind of stuff, and we are just so psyched to talk about cleaning our room. It's like, great, but your room's still a mess. Dad, I came, you know, and here's the thing. I learned what you mean in the Greek and what mom means in the Aramaic when dad says go clean your room and when mom says go clean your room, because in this language, when dad says go clean your room, it just means pick your crap up. When mom says clean your room, it means you better scrub the floorboards, you better have that thing spick and span, like there's a whole different meaning, and I understand the intricacies of the language of the details and have memorized what you mean. <laughs> I would say, Ava, I love you. Did you clean your room? And she said, no. I'd say, well, you can have all the activity in the world. You can memorize it all you want. You can sit in circles all you want. You can talk about it all you want. And that's obviously and incredibly not meant to degrade or to belittle any of that stuff because we think that is an absolute catalyst. That's why we have the entire Next Steps dinner on Tuesday because we think what is catalyst to us applying the Word of God and the things of God and the commands of God to our lives is joining in with community, praying for one another and holding each other accountable and opening God's Word for ourselves and talking about how this influences our life. But it is very possible to do all of that and not actually follow God. I think that the problem is, most of us don't even engage in this. Most of us don't even engage people groups that are different than us. Most of us don't even really engage in helping other people to come to know Jesus. I said this is the, this is the first service. I feel like I got to clarify this because sometimes when we talk about that, I mean, it just gets real weird. We feel like as Christians, we have to like force awkward conversations, which is really not the tr- the, the, the reality. It's more of like a for me, it, it's just getting to know people, hanging out with people, befriending people, and asking good questions. Saying, "Man, what do you think about God?" I'm not trying to like force my opinion on you, force my objective on you, force my belief on you. What do you think about God? What's your experience with the church? A lot of times we feel like we have to have these like really stupid, awkward conversations. It's like you're watching a basketball game and LeBron crosses somebody up because LeBron's the man, and as LeBron crosses somebody up, we're like, "Oh, dude, that was a great crosser." Speaking of cross. Jesus hung on the cross. It's like, 
cool, man. Well, I'm going to go back to watching the finals. No, I'm serious. That's how, we, that's how we view things. It's like, man, let's just make things as awkward as possible. It's like, no, no, not at all. We just, we, just, we, just, we just want you to actively think, how can I serve this person? How can I love this person? How can I engage with this person? How can I have a conversation with this person that would perhaps lead them, open up questions? And in fact, let me, why, why I believe in asking questions so much is because how can you intelligently speak to how someone needs to hear the gospel, needs to hear the truth of God in their life when you don't know anything about that person and their background? Because people have incredibly different needs when it comes to God, and everybody comes to God for a different reason and how can you know what that person needs if you never hear from that person themselves but that's a whole nother sermon for another whole day to say many of us don't even engage in that many of us don't even engage in the idea of taking someone who has faith and helping them to walk in depth in their faith and their knowledge and their wisdom of god so let me just be real pointed are you a disciple are you a follower? Do you actually take this stuff? And no one's going to be perfect. And not in the understanding that you have to be perfect and you have to be without sin. You have to be 100% on the commandments. So come on. A lot of times as Christians, we say, man, I struggle with this. Are we struggling? Are we trying? Because the power of the Holy Spirit helps us, empowers us to engage in the spiritual battle. Because we know our, our battle is not against the flesh and blood of this world, but against the rulers and the evils and the prince powers. We understand that. We know that you're not going to be perfect. But are we engaging in the battle? Because I think the world is waiting for a group of Christians, a group of disciples, a group of Christ followers who actually follow Jesus. Who are themselves the disciples who are themselves followers. And consequently, as a result, make disciples. You see, if you're in here, you're not you know, a church person, you're kind of on the periphery of church, not really sure where you stand, what you think. Isn't it true that you would think much differently about God? You would think much differently about Christians if Christians actually lived like Jesus, followed Jesus. As First John puts it, he says, anyone who claims to be in him must then walk as he walked. And we got a lot of claimers, but not a lot of walkers. And again, that is not at all an indictment. And I pray that our church becomes a church who that would not be true of. But for many of us, we're not following. We're claiming. And we have an identification with. But it's not the sense of authentically following Jesus. Now, beautiful news. The great, the great thing about this is that as you're hearing that, you're thinking, man, that's me. And I feel like a you know, loser because of it. I feel like a dirtbag, whatever. The reality is, is that's the entire reason Jesus came. The entire reason Jesus came is because we aren't good enough, because we are sinful. In fact, the gospel is this circular pattern where I try to live into the call of God. I fall short of the call of God. Because I fall short of the call of God, I repent to God, and God restores me, and it just keeps going and 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 keeps going. 
And so if you come to the awareness that, man, I am not following God like I ought to, the condemnation in this, there is no condemnation in this. There is no, you ought to, you bad person, you terrible person, I can't believe you would. The message of the gospel is simple, and the message of the gospel is clear, and the message of the gospel is that in spite of our insufficiencies, God is sufficient. God's grace is there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all iniquities. That as we confess and say, God, I know I'm not following you, but I know I should be. In whatever, whatever area of life that is true for you. Because all of us, it's different. All of us are in different places in life, different walks of life come from different backgrounds. But whatever area perhaps that's true of you, where you would look at your life and say, I know I have given my life to Jesus. I have, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I have you know, placed my, my, my faith, my hope and trust in the, in the crucifixion and what he did on the cross and him dying and rising again for me. But I know there's areas that I'm not following him. When we confess our sins, we say, God, I'm sorry and I've sinned and I have fallen the short. He is constantly and continually in the process of forgiving us. And yes, absolutely, when we first confess, there is ultimate salvation and ultimate forgiveness. But, but, as we as Christians continually confess, it brings us back to the awareness that we, in fact, need Jesus. And as we realize that we need Jesus, the Spirit of God continues to pour into us. And as the Spirit of God continues to pour into us, it gives us the power to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And the first step is simply saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you. In whatever area, in fact, in all areas, I need you. Help me, help me, help me, in spite of the ways that I've fallen short, to fully follow you. And let me just end by saying this. There is nothing else in your life or in this world that will ever be worth following with your entire life besides Jesus. There is nothing else and there is no one else that will give you more value, that will give you more purpose, that will give you not only more satisfaction and more grace, but will give you a restored relationship with your heavenly Father, who so loved each one of us, he did not see us and count our sins against us, but sent his one and only Son to die for us. That whoever would believe in him, whoever would put their faith, their hope, and their trust in their inability to earn their way into God's good graces, and would call on Jesus, would trust in Jesus, that when he died, our sinfulness and God's holiness in some miraculous way became compatible, that you would be saved. And there is nothing else on this earth that is worth revolving your life around. So I don't know who you are and where you are, your level of following, your level of discipleship, but I'm just praying that God gives us the wisdom to know the areas of our life, to know all the areas of our life where we perhaps have stopped following God and the courage to surrender him to him, to give our lives to him, to realize our insufficiency, and in light of that, to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the ways that you love us. Thank you for the, so much for the ways that you have given your son to die for us. God, we will never fully understand or comprehend the depth and the depravity of our sinfulness and our rebellion. Nor will we ever fully comprehend your glory and your holiness and just how 
unspeakable it is that we are actually able to speak to you, God, our Heavenly Father. God, each of us have sinned. All of us have turned astray. All of us have made decisions not to follow you. But you still gave your son for us. God, would you help us to be followers of you? Would you help us to be disciples of you? Would you help us to not simply have a cultural identification about you? But God, would you give us the wisdom to know all of the areas that we are withholding from you that we aren't following you? And when you give us the courage to surrender and to lean into you in those areas. And God, as we do that, would you please, please, please make us into your church? Would you please, please, please use our stones, build our stones into this spiritual house? Would you build us into, up into this church that is a representation of who you are? Would you build us into your kingdom and your community? Would you make us into this royal priesthood? Would you make us a type of community that people see and don't see, oh my gosh, that is a good place, that's a cool place, that's a neat place, but they would look at us and they would see you in and through us. God, would you please make us into your bride, your church, your body, your house that you are building as we deeply and passionately fall in love with you, as we love the people around us because we have been so deeply loved, and as we create disciples, as we ourselves are disciples, engaging people who are nothing like us, engaging people who are like us, helping them to come to know you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and helping them to walk in depth and growth in their relationship with you. God, would you build us, each living stone, into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, to offer sacrifices which are our lives to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.